We are creatures of desire. What we most desire is meaning. What makes us suffer most is a lack of meaning. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Marital therapist, author, and communications trainer Andrew G. Marshall invites guests from all walks of life to discuss what makes life meaningful. Hello, I'm Andrew G. Marshall, and welcome to The Meaningful Life. I've tackled some difficult and taboo subjects before, like death and the menopause, but at least I could happily mention them on social media without fear of being blocked or worrying if I needed a trigger warning. However, today I'm going to use a word that is almost completely missing from the greater conversation about life, the universe, and everything. So what is this word? Vagina. I'm going to say it again, vagina. My witness today on The Meaningful Life is Fran Bush, who is an award-winning comedian and playwright and the author of a new memoir called My Broken Vagina, One Woman's Quest to Fix Her Sex Life and Yours. It's been quite a journey from 16 years old and full of hope, Fran still has her teenage diary, to a resolution at 30 to finally be honest with her partners and to stop faking orgasms. In this journey, she ends up at sex camp in the Love Lounge. The book is simply brilliant. It's really relatable because she's captured all the awkwardness of the topic, but has thrown in great research and has jokes too. And I recommend it to men as well as women, even though it shows we have a lot to learn about giving women sexual pleasure. Therefore, I've pulled three ideas out of Fran's book that I will share that I think will increase the pleasure of every woman and provide a language for couples about how to talk about sex. So let's turn the clock back to 16-year-old Fran, who would probably be completely and utterly shocked to know that you've written a book about your vagina and that you're talking to a man about it. A 16-year-old Fran would be absolutely mortified. Yes, absolutely (laughs) mortified. Would have been too nervous to say the word vagina out loud, definitely. So we should keep saying it throughout this podcast. So what had this young lady discovered about sex from school and from her research in magazines and from the greater culture? I thought that my vagina, I didn't know, first of all, that there was a a difference between the vagina and the vulva. I had absolutely no idea about the anatomy that I had inside on my own body. I had absolutely no idea where to start. I didn't know that I had a clitoris. I didn't know that I could experience pleasure, sexual pleasure. I didn't know about the female orgasm. I knew all about people with penises pleasure. I knew I could name all the different bits of the penis, could label it perfectly on a diagram, but my own body and the fact that sex was something for me to enjoy as well was a complete mystery to me. I think I also I thought that pubic hair was pretty disgusting and that I might my my body might smell bad or taste bad at school vaginas got called fishes which i mean fish can be lovely <laughs> when when served in the right way but isn't a very nice comparison in your head as a as a teenager yeah i think someone told me once they, there's what called a cabbage 
And cabbages aren't a sexy vegetable. Had you even looked properly at your vagina or touched it? No, absolutely not. The thought of doing that would have been way too confronting for me. I had absolutely no idea what labia were. I had no, I think I I thought sex was penetrative and that was basically it. That was all the sexual acts would be and anything else was a warm-up or something to be included in the build-up to the big event of a penis going into a vagina. And then I didn't really know what would happen next. I knew that there was a massive chance I could contract thousands of STDs and I could get pregnant instantly, even from pre-cum. So all of the language around sex was full of fear and danger and, and risk. So what year are we talking about? Because my suspicion is it sounds about the same time that I went to school in the 60s, but I'm sure that it's not. So what year are we talking about that you were 16? 2003. So The Darkness were an incredibly popular band. Dawson's Creep had just ended. We're in a sort of post-girl power. We'd all fallen in love with the Spice Girls and then decided we were too cool for the Spice Girls, but still secretly loved them in our hearts. But in terms of any kind of conversation culturally, societally around vaginas, just nothing really. I think where I heard people most talk about sex was the TV show Friends. That was it really. And and there it is all vaguely euphemistic and you know people are having sex, but there's no, there was nothing out there that was saying sex can be difficult, sex doesn't always work the way you think it will, and sex doesn't always look like in films where, you know, everyone, (laughs) the penis goes straight into the vagina. Well, we don't even see that bit, do we? Even when they've finished having sex in the movies, they're still wearing their underwear somehow. I never quite understood that one, that, you know, the minute you've finished, you put your underwear on. It's true. And then she's wearing his shirt within 20 seconds, which is what I always do. I always immediately (laughs) dress as my boyfriend, (laughs) just fully. (laughs) You go through his dirty laundry when you arrive, don't you? First thing. Oh, yeah. It's just to feel close to him. (laughs) Oh, it was a lovely song by Elkie Brooks, who you've probably never even heard of, used to sing a song called Honey, Can I Put On Your Clothes? Because Mm. they smell like you do. So she probably has been watching these programmes. So we're all ready with all this wonderful knowledge. I mean, what can possibly go wrong now that you and your boyfriend are in the zone together? But, you know, talk me through what happened. I mean, we had big plans for it, for the the losing of the virginity ceremony, essentially. (laughs) We'd lit lots of candles. We'd made everything incredibly romantic. And I didn't really know that you know, maybe kissing for a while first would be a good idea or that touching for a while first would be a good idea. We essentially took off our clothes, fell back on the bed and he tried to put his penis inside me. It is unsurprising. It it did not work. It wouldn't go in at all. And it was incredibly, incredibly painful. And what followed was around nine months of the same, trying to have penetrative sex 
and it not working, it always feeling like my vulva was a brick wall or that maybe I didn't even have a vagina and over time feeling more and more broken and worried as well because I was so scared that sex was so important to my boyfriend that he would leave me, that he would go and find someone else with a vagina that worked, a vagina that let people in, just like, hey, come on in, come into the vagina. Sit right down, make yourself at home. Yeah, here's a coffee. Only a coffee. I think we should have a glass of something sparkling, shouldn't we? <laughs> yeah, that's true. Maybe some oysters as well, maybe feel appropriate. Yeah, yeah a few cocktail snacks as well. Yeah. So I, w- I was worried that I wasn't offering that genital buffet, <laughs> sadly. And also, I suppose what happened alongside those attempts was that I came to expect sex to be painful. And so I'd find it harder to feel sexual or aroused. And so sex would be painful because I was expecting it. So orgasm, the idea of any kind of enjoyment of sex felt very, very far off. At first, it was something I didn't even know about. And I think it was probably my teenage boyfriend that explained that was something I could get out of sex, that I could enjoy sex. And I wasn't convinced. (laughs) But um, yeah, just over, over a really long period of time felt increasingly like everyone else was having sex. Everyone else was having perfect sex. And I was behind somehow. I was malfunctioning. I'm proud of 16-year-old Fran because she did go to the doctors. What happened when she went to the doctor? So it was a really big deal. I had to work myself up to even say the word sex. I got there and there was a lot of care for whether or not I might get pregnant, whether or not I was being safe. So I felt very unheard because I was saying, well, I'm not actually able to have sex. I'm finding it very painful. I was told to have a glass of wine to loosen myself up a bit. And I was told to get out there and have more sex, which when sex is excruciatingly painful is a quite frightening piece of advice because, well, I guess we just keep going at this until it works. And was this a male or a female doctor? Over time, I have seen both, but this first one, was a male doctor, I felt so embarrassed for asking for sex to be nice. I felt like, oh, I'm not dying. I haven't got a limb that's fallen off. This isn't affecting my basic practical life. It felt really indulgent and selfish almost to be asking for sex not to hurt. Wow. I mean, I just wish that I could have actually been there and asked questions because doctors, unfortunately, are not trained to talk about sex. I just cannot understand why he didn't actually say, well, why don't I refer you to somebody who does talk about sex? And they could actually, you know, listen to you and Mm. find out exactly what's going on and give you some better knowledge and challenge some of those ideas that, you know, sex is for boys and that you've got to instantly be in the mood that you're, you've got to instantly lubricate and, you know, challenge all these st- 
stupid ideas about sex. But I cannot understand why he thought that he was going to talk to a 16-year-old girl about sex. I mean, it's just bizarre. Yeah. And I think it just isn't or wasn't certainly a part of training, or if it was, it was very minimal, rushed over. But this was 2003. You know, this is like three minutes ago. Yeah. I also got told to put Savlon on my vulva, which you should never do. It says so on the label, never put Savlon on your vulva. I was offered some psychosexual counseling at one point, much later, but they said I had to do it in a couple. I found that my sexual happiness and health was taken a lot more seriously when I was in a couple because then it was impacting the health and mental health of my partner. And somehow that felt more important, more weighty to them than whether or not I was enjoying it. (laughs) Anyway, let's not get into a diatribe. What's I'm interested in is how you dealt with all of this, which was you became one of the best performers in London on how to fake an orgasm. It sounds like it, you know, if they were giving fake orgasm awards, I suspect you could have been in there for a, I don't know, we wouldn't perhaps call it a Tony. What would we call it? <laughs> a groany. <laughs> a groany. There we are. You would or a, have been- a moany, maybe, maybe a moany. <laughs> a moany or a groany. Best faked orgasm. And the winner is Fran Bush. So tell me about your award-winning performances. Oh boy. Yeah. I must have studied sex scenes in films because I certainly at that point wasn't watching any porn. And so I had an idea of the noises you were meant to make, the right oohs, the right ahs, the where you put your hands in your hair, exactly what the sweat is meant to look like as it cascades down your brow. Um, (laughs) And I thought, I can provide this for my partner because I don't want them to feel like they're doing a bad job. Above everything else, I want them to feel like they are the best at sex, like they are an exceptional lover and they get me there every single time because someone has to be enjoying it. Someone out of the two of us has to be having a nice time right now. And it certainly isn't me. So I would give very intense eye contact. I would flick my hair. I would make loud noises. I would magically orgasm pretty much identically to the time they would orgasm simultaneously, like real deep connection, Mm. magic. Wow. Yeah. Also, without the noise, the silence is quite scary. The silence, you know, just like the gentle thud of a, of a bedstead on wall, it feels quite all-consuming. And sex, I think for a lot of people, is quite performative. I think mostly when people masturbate, they don't really make a lot of noise at all. But there is something, and like something very nice about the fact that when you're with someone else, you feel sometimes free to make all the noises you want. And one of the things that's really important is if you actually feel it inside and you let the sound out, it does actually increase the pleasure. Yeah. Because at one end of the scale, we've got you feeling you've got to be in the moanies. 
And at the other end of the scale, we've got people who are trying to be as silent as possible because there are children in the other room. And there must be a happy place somewhere between that. But actually, if it's genuinely true that you're actually feeling, ah, it doesn't have to be performative, but you have to show what's inside, outside, because number one, just going, ah, you know, just like that, you just feel a little bit better, even though we're not having sex at the moment. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> I, should, I should point that out. We're in two different places, so don't worry. Just to make that completely clear. clear. <laughs> but if you do let the sound out, it does increase the pleasure, but it's got to be real. There's no point performing. Yes. So what made you decide that I'm going to stop performing? Performing was exhausting and it was making my partners very happy, but it it was a lie. It wasn't being honest and in the moment with someone. I was using it as a buffer so that I didn't have to have an honest conversation about sex. And it also meant that a lot of the time through sex, I was almost watching myself. I was being like, oh, that will look good. Oh, yeah. No, if you put your foot there and your knee there, that's going to, oh, that's going to be a really sexy position. Oh, what are your boobs doing right now? Are they, are they flapping around? No, if you turn this way and make this noise, that's going to look much more like sex should look, this idea of what sex should look like. And so it just ran out one day. I realized that not to make it sound like an ancient myth, but almost every time I, faked an orgasm, I felt a bit like I lost a little bit of myself. Oh gosh, that's so sad, isn't it? Yeah. And my partners, I think, weren't faking. And the longer you leave these things, the harder it is to tell the truth. There were times when I was honest with partners about sex being painful, but they didn't always react very well. So give me a typical example, because in your book, you tell us about, you know, you decide I'm going to stop faking. I'm going to tell the truth. Your boyfriend at that time, rather than actually saying, gosh, Fran, how sad and how pleased I am that you felt close enough to me to tell me this piece of information. He started going off on a little weird kind of journey of his own. So tell us about this weird journey. Yeah, I think sex is so wrapped up in our own egos and our idea of how good a lover we are and we want to be good lovers that it really wounded his pride and he immediately internalized it himself and it's like, well, it it must be my penis. You're saying that I don't have a good penis, but that can't be true because I've got a very good penis and this penis has made pretty much every other woman orgasm that's been even even near it, just in the vicinity of my penis. Just sort of crossing the road somewhere near it could actually be quite dangerous that they could actually get pleasure. Yeah, everyone, there's sort of a zone around this (laughs) penis that you just have to be real careful with. And he couldn't hear what I was saying. There's a part of me that does understand that because... You know, when you're having sex with someone, you're at your most vulnerable. And the thought that someone hasn't been being entirely honest with you must be quite difficult to digest. But he did sit there after I told him that I wasn't enjoying sex and basically just said the word penis for about an hour while staring at his own penis. 
But the problem is, unfortunately, number one, men have been given this message. We have to know everything about sex. We have to be in charge. So if a woman doesn't have an orgasm, it's down to our lack of technique. I mean, the whole, all of the stuff is about, you know, technique, technique, technique. So there must be something wrong with, if not my penis, my technique, and I'm supposed to have all the answers. The idea that we could sort of find something out ourselves is sort of, you know, a mystery. And men are terrified of not maintaining the, because the penis not only has to be 12 inches long, but it has to be as hard as a piece of steel. And of course, I think you've probably seen enough penises to know that none of them are made of steel. No. The myths for men are as equally unhelpful as the myths for women. So in some ways, it's not a surprise when somebody who believes penises should be like made of steel and should be magical in some kind of way and that they own a magic penis. Women who are told it's all about men's pleasure and have no idea how their bodies work. It's a miracle that anybody enjoys sex, to be perfectly honest. It's true. It's a very small, the overlapping of that Venn diagram is tiny of people who would enjoy sex. And on the other side of it as well, some men did listen, but then it became almost like a challenge. So my body became something to fix because they knew they were good at sex. So it probably wasn't their penis. That wasn't the thing that was wrong. Their penis was the solution. Their penis was the thing that could fix it. And then obviously, if it doesn't, if their penis isn't the magical answer, again, you're dealing with ego and you're trying to work out whether saying, oh no, actually, sorry, it still isn't working is the right thing. And a lot of times I looked after my partners before I looked after myself. So I would say to them, oh no, yes, it it has now worked. Your penis is the chosen one. (laughs) And what shocked me was that you hadn't even had a truly honest conversation with your best friend, Laura, about all of this. Mm. And she hadn't really had an honest conversation with you either. I think it is really rare for people to talk completely honestly about their sex life. In fact, I know it is because so many people, when I speak about it, are quite shocked or think it's incredibly brave or bold or heroic. And so that tells me that this isn't something we are talking about. We are maybe willing to share the good bits, the the nice bits. Or the funny bits. Oh, definitely the funny bits. The bits where people fall off the bed, the bits where lovers say funny things when they climax, all of that. But not about sex being painful. Or, I mean, sometimes I think the things that you are allowed to, there are things you're allowed to joke about almost. And in some ways, I'd say men's experience of sex has felt more available to make jokes about people will make jokes about penis size or... You could almost hear the joke about a man not being able to get it up, but I don't think I've ever heard a joke about a woman having, and let's give it the correct term, vaginismus, where it's actually painful or difficult to accept penis into the vagina. Yeah, absolutely. And things like medicine for erectile dysfunction. I see enormous posters on the underground tube in London. I see in the front of all of the pharmacies here, it will say, 
Viagra available over the counter without prescription. And so if you have a penis, you can go in and you can have that conversation. You don't even have to speak to a doctor. You can go in and chat to your pharmacist, which is probably easier. But the message is, this is okay to talk about. We are tackling this. Whereas for women, the idea, it feels almost quite mystical and it has to be slightly more holistic. And that's why a lot of people with vaginas get sold crystals to put in their vaginas. (laughs) So let's talk about some of the things that actually helped. I pulled out three ideas that I think we should point up. And the first one, and it sounds terribly obvious, which is work out what turns you on. It's not a question that most people have really thought about a huge amount. I mean, this is a terribly personal question to ask, but we've talked about your vagina. So I think I can ask you this question. Did you discover what turns you on? And if you did, what does turn you on? Yeah, I think what I realized was when I had sex that I was enjoying and felt like a positive experience, there were things in common. And I guess because I was sometimes getting upset after sex or finding it difficult and emotional, I was failing to see that actually some bits of it really were working because I was getting lost in this cloud of I'm broken, my vagina's rubbish, I'll never have good sex. And I was actually not saying that, oh, do you know what? I know that if I'm stressed, which is probably quite a lot of the time, I'm pretty anxious as a human being. But when I am stressed, there is so little chance of me being present for sex. My brain will be everywhere else. It will be worrying about whether I've left the stove on, worrying about have I made the right life choices, worrying about the government. It's not going to be there with my body or with my partner's body. So I got the sense that talking was actually part of the turn on and actually making you feel comfortable. Am I right about that? Yes, definitely. I mean, as a writer and performer, I'm a big communicator anyway. And being able to have those conversations, even being able to just say, oh, I've had a really stressful day. These things happened. Saying those things and then moving on to any kind of intimacy was incredibly important for me because I think I was just like, oh, I have to have sex because they want to have sex and they're ready to have sex now. So I guess I'll put all those worries somewhere else. And it didn't, it didn't have to be a big immersive discover what I like, lock myself in a sex dungeon type exploration of what turns me on. It was just noticing the things that all of my positive sexual experiences had in common. Like some people, if they're stressed, sex is a wonderful sex. Sex is a wonderful sex. Sex is a wonderful stress reliever, right? It can help you sleep. But for me, if I'm stressed, it's just, it's not going to happen. And I think it's good that you've mentioned you don't have to lock yourself in a sex dungeon because that's sort of immediately where people go when you say what turns you on. You know, it is little things. I mean, I know a lot about you because I've read a whole book about you. You know, spooning and actually stroking and touching, almost sensual touch rather than sexual touch is about what turns you on. I would imagine that fabrics and things like that might 
help? I don't know. But it's these very simple things rather than going to lock yourself in a sex dungeon. Yeah. And I think for a while, I thought they were quite vanilla and maybe boring. And surely everyone likes candles. And I guess that means I'm not sexually exciting. And I would think all these things are really, they're, they're not good enough. The things that turn me on aren't good enough or exciting enough. But yeah, but they're just the things I need. I know that I'm going to be more comfortable having sex if I'm clean because I'm not going to be worrying. Does my body smell? Is my what's going on with the different parts of my body? And I'd love to get to a point where I absolutely don't care and I just throw myself on the bed fresh from my gym workout that I do all the time. But at the minute, I know that to get that worry out of my head, if I go and have a shower or or a bath, I'm going to be much more present during sex. And I think that's the important thing to say is what turns you on is what turns you on is what turns you on. You don't have to actually justify it. Look back at your favorite sexual experiences. What worked? And they're these tiny little things that's okay. They don't have to be earth-shattering things. So the second thing that I pulled out of your journey is stop spectatoring, which is an idea from Masters and Johnson. So tell us about that, because I have just a sneaky suspicion you could be up for another prize for spectatoring. Yes. So to put it very simply, spectatoring is when you are almost watching yourself have sex. It's almost like there's a CCTV monitor in the corner of the room and you have direct access during sex to the footage of the sexual experience. And so... And you're also commentating on it at the same time. Oh, yes, absolutely. So it's almost like watching a football match and you have the commentary on top. So it's like, oh, this is going badly. Or that, I guess he... he did. A, he smiled then. So maybe that. Maybe he liked that. Maybe I should do more of that. Oh no, he didn't like that. No. And so it's a lot of mental chatter, which is not sexy, but also it can really dull your reactions and your responses as well, because you can't feel present. Your mind is not going to be there. Your body isn't going to feel like it's entirely there. And the spectatoring voice is very rarely a kind voice. <laughs> in one world, the spectatoring voice would be like, you're doing amazing. You're incredible at sex. Yes, Fran. Go, Fran, go. Yeah, like a little cheerleader in the corner, just being like, you look beautiful. But it's not. It's mostly, oh, I think you've made the wrong decision with your pubic hair. Oh, you should hold on to your boobs when you're in a fast bit because they're flapping around. And my advice would be to gently escort those thoughts to one side and focus back on your breath. So just the air going into your nostrils and the air coming out of your mouth because you can't just say, oh, don't think about that because the more you say, don't think about it, the more you will think about it. So you give it something else to think about or focus on your touch. Focus on actually how it feels at the end of your fingers to stroke the back of his hand, for example. You know, how does that feel? Because actually 
it can feel really beautiful to actually feel the sensations at the end of your fingers. So either focus on your breath or focus on your fingers. And if your mind goes to the CCTV, be kind, say, I know it's a very compelling footage, but let's go back to focusing on our fingers or our breath. That's our second one. We've had work out what turns you on, stop spectatoring. And this is a brilliant one. Learn about your accelerators and your brakes. Yeah. I mean, those sort of feed back into learning what turns you on because there are some things that are going to make you want to have sex more and and make it more likely that you will enjoy sex. And those are your accelerators. You know, if we're thinking about it as a car, those are the things that are going to make you go for a, a really nice drive. And there are some things that immediately are probably going to take you out of the moment or could potentially put you into a feeling stressed or anxious. So knowing what those things are, rather than just leaving it to chance, means you're much as much more likely to have a nice, fulfilling experience. Again, like coming back to knowing if I'm having an incredibly anxious day, coming from an anxious situation, I know would be a massive break for me. Being in certain environments is probably a break for me. Some people will absolutely love to have sex that it feels quite public. And some people will want to feel very safe and the door is locked and they know the door is locked and there's no one else in. So knowing those things that will accelerate or break your feeling of wanting to have sex and therefore the likelihood that you will enjoy sex, just make it a bit easier. Yeah. And I think this is a very good language that you can actually talk to your partner about. You know, you can almost do a little quiz, you know, put a piece of paper down, a line through the middle. What are my accelerators? What are my brakes? And then you share them. And so, you know, if privacy is one of yours, cleanliness, that you put them all down, try and make them not about the other person. So don't make it when you're smelly, that's a break. You know, if it is personal, put it into an accelerator with the opposite way round. So cleanliness is really important to me rather than putting it down as a break. If it's something personal about the other person, it's much easier to hear what you want rather than what you don't want from your partner. So how did you end up in sex camp? I felt so on my own with sex. I had really loving partners and I just couldn't communicate to them what was going on. I was just wasn't sure whose responsibility my experience was. And so I stumbled on, I mean, I very affectionately call it sex camp, but it was a, a sexuality festival, I suppose, with a focus on sex and spirit. And I don't know, I think in life, sometimes I can be quite cynical, quite practical. I have got this real hunger to be more holistic and spiritual, but I want to know that something's going to work. I wanted a fix. And where else would you get a fix beyond sex camp? How far out of your comfort zone were you? Oh, very, very, very out of my comfort zone, but very quickly accepted into the throng of sex camp. <laughs> I um, 
I just, I didn't know what to expect. I was worried that I'd bump into people from work. Um, <laughs> or like someone that I knew would be there and we'd have to make small talk. I didn't know again, what the right choices were with my pubic hair. I think pubic hair is probably one of the things that has stopped me enjoying sex the most throughout my life. The Gosh. worry that it is too short, too long, too prickly, not enough. Is it in their teeth? Is it in their mouth? Are they fishing for a pube? I just, I had it so drilled into me as a teenager that pubes were there to be got rid of. And then suddenly I was on my way to sex camp and I'm thinking, well, God, maybe I haven't got enough pubes. Maybe, <laughs> maybe for this environment, I need more pubes. Um, but it, I was very prepared to only be there a couple of days. I just wanted to see what was on offer because I felt like all of my other options had dried up, unfortunately. <laughs> We'll skirt over the double entendre there. Yes, yes. Yeah, I just didn't know where else to turn. And I wanted to go somewhere where people could talk about sex without it feeling problematic or shameful. And on the subject of dryness, the word de la jour at sex camp was juicy. Yes, everything was juicy. Breathing was juicy. Uh, hugging was juicy. The grass was juicy. They were all there in search of juiciness, which I think to me when I arrived was, oh, oh no, because juiciness sounds messy and juiciness, <laughs> I mean, the juice will go everywhere. <laughs> but there were some really important things that came out of it. And one of the first ones was that people were naked in the sauna, that you saw nakedness. I mean, I live in Berlin where not quite, you can see nakedness on every street corner, but if you go into the woods, people will be swimming in the lake. And in most of the lakes, there will be at least 50% of the people there naked. So I see naked bodies on a fairly regular basis of all ages and sizes, but this was something that was new for you. You saw other naked people. Yeah. What happened to you? Well, I had only really seen naked bodies, I guess, in pornography. And I, I'm trying to think where else I would have come across naked bodies. You sort of see them in adverts for showers and shower gel, but sort of semi-naked bodies and only the nice, what people consider the nice bits. Yeah, a very sanitized and sexualized version of the naked body. I would say is what I had seen. And suddenly I was sat in a room with just everybody spreading everything everywhere. And I was so nervous to go into the sauna. I had to do a little run up to get in. And I thought if I go quite fast, my body will be such a blur, a naked blur that no one will see anything. <laughs> They'll be like, that was a very sexy blur that just went by. But it's, there's, a lot of research that says how we feel about our bodies, how self-conscious we are about our bodies really impacts our enjoyment of sex. And also research that sex actually gets better for women as they get older because their relationship with their body improves and it is easier in some ways to let go and not be spectatoring. I had never been amongst so many diverse bodies and without a feeling of I need to cover up 
people shouldn't see this. This is only for a lover. <laughs> this is just for one special person. And then hopefully when they haven't got their glasses on. <laughs> yes. So this was the first time, I think, at the age of 30, in this sauna, where I was like, oh, my, my body is okay. My body is good for this situation right now, where I'm amongst naked people. No one's about to have sex. There's nothing remotely sexual about this. We're just sweating together. Getting juicy together. Yes, creating all of the juices. And I think it was a, it was just a nice moment of self-acceptance. And like, I really like, I really like being naked. That is something I have discovered. And it's so easy to fall into the trap of feeling bad about your body. There's so much in the world that is ready to tell you that your body isn't good enough, that it is not the right kind of body. And this felt like, in fact, the whole of sex camp felt like a reprieve from that. Well, the second thing that I think was really important that you learned there was you went to the consent workshop. Now, it sounds like the most boring thing in the world, the consent workshop, but actually it's the most important thing. So tell me about your experiences in consent workshop. So I think my consent education at school and beyond had been pretty shocking. Consent boiled down to don't get yourself into a bad situation. Don't get too drunk. It's really hard to prosecute if something goes wrong. So everything around consent was fear-based. It was about girls only getting in danger and the fact that men maybe couldn't really help themselves. So we needed to make it easier for them to not follow their natural urges by looking after ourselves and not dressing in certain ways. And I had no idea that consent was anything more than that. I especially had no idea that consent had anything at all to do with saying yes, as much as it did saying no. I realized that I had no idea what I wanted. I had no idea how to ask for it. I was worried about being judged for what I asked for. And again, it wasn't like I was asking for some time in the sex dungeon. I was worried that I would be judged for asking for something too bland. I was at a sex camp after all. So saying, oh, hey, do you want to just maybe massage my head? That felt very boring. And But if that's what you want more than anything else at the moment, that is probably a very good place to go. Yeah, absolutely. So you can tell me, Fran, what happens in the Love Lounge? So, And it's not going to be quite like what people expect, is it? No, it's not. So imagine low lighting, cushions, throws, massage bars being passed around. It smells like different aromatic spices and essential oils. Very beautiful space. A space that opened after hours, essentially. Once the workshops were done for the day, the sauna would be open and the love lounge would open. And everyone was so excited about it. You could just hear everyone being like, oh, the love lounge. Let's go to the love lounge. I love the love lounge. And I was terrified. It's juicy in the love lounge. 
well, that was it. I was like, there's a lot of soft furnishings in the Love Lounge. And so for the first night it was open, I was too scared to go in because it felt like such a big deal and I wasn't really sure what to expect. And I think it was the second night that I got the courage to go in. The important thing to know about the Love Lounge is penetrative sex of any kind is absolutely banned. And if anyone sees it happening around them, they have to say a safe word and everyone puts their hands and feet in the air. <laughs> so don't do penetrative sex. That's, that's the, uh, that's the take home message of the love lounge. It was about slowing down. It was about tenderness, the touch. I think there were feathers in there and some blindfolds and just really about finding pleasure outside and away from penetration. And I still in my head at 30 had this idea that penetrative sex was the ultimate sex, the gold standard. That's real sex. Everything else is just warm up. Yeah, absolutely. And I think that idea is so deeply battered into our brains by the world that it's taken a lot of unpicking to the extent that even now at 34, I every so often catch myself being like, yeah, but penetrative sex, that's the big sex. But in the Love Lounge, because it wasn't even an option, you had to be like, okay, so what do I like outside of this? And for me, it was wonderful because I think I had quite a lot of fear around penetrative sex. And I also was still very much tying it in to these ideas of romantic love and connection and it being the joining of two bodies, quite literally. But I wasn't having the sex that was right, not right for my body, but I was really focusing on trying to have penetrative sex for so long that I stopped exploring anything else. And I just knew that that was the thing that I, I wanted to achieve. And once I achieved penetrative sex, then everything else would fall into place. So I was quite annoyed when I entered the love lounge and, and realized that it was off the table. But it was probably, along with the consent workshop, one of the best things for realizing that actually there's more. There's realizing what I want to do and what works for my body. So you were being stroked and you were stroking multiple people. Yeah. Turns out I really like to be tickled, ah. which I think is something that I would be embarrassed about because it feels, again, it feels quite, it sits in a weird space between feeling unusual and also quite boring in my head. But I was like, actually... The great thing about being tickled is it's very difficult to think <laughs> when you're being tickled and yes. you have to be in the moment because otherwise who knows what will happen. So I, yeah, I discovered that and they had wonderful like lotions and potions to rub into each other's skin. And it was really important for me, I think, to be in a room where sort of anything was possible apart from penetration 
and to go, actually, I don't have to do anything. There's no obligation here to do anything. I can just sit here. I can just be. Just touching someone's hand is enough. Just touching my own hand is enough. And so I realized that I need to feel safe and I need touch that doesn't feel immediately sexually threatening, I guess. And I use the word threateningly in a, in a way that it's like, oh, sex is impending. Here comes sex. I, I can see sex on the horizon. I don't mean threatening in, a, in an aggressive way. Just when you know that sex might happen, I would start to worry and anticipate and be like, well, it's, it probably won't work and it will probably be painful. So if I know I can just have a cuddle instead and then who knows, my body and my brain are just much more in, in the right place for it. The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. Please follow us on Twitter, like us on Facebook, and visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material and other benefits. One of the advantages of being a member of our supporters circle is you get lots of added benefits. We're going to be starting a heart circle where we're going to be talking from the heart. And it's a great way of actually being able to communicate what it is you want. And it's also very good at um, helping you to listen to other people. I'll be starting that shortly. If you're a member of our premium supporters club, you get access to that free. All members of the supporters circle get a chance to write into us. And we've got a letter that Fran and I are going to discuss. I've been enjoying your podcast. And I'm impressed by how your guests talk so openly about themselves and their struggles. I would like to think I could be equally honest especially with people I love and care about. But somehow with these people, I find it harder rather than easier. I worry about how they will respond, especially me and my boyfriend who can get defensive or that I will upset them because I haven't spoken up earlier. What will they think of me? When it comes to my mother, I don't want her to worry because she is a worrier and I don't know how to deal with the 101 follow-up questions. And at the end of the day, I want her to be proud of me. Deep down, I know this is stupid and I should just take a deep breath and launch in, but all my carefully prepared thoughts just crumble to dust. Any advice on how to speak my truth without worrying so much about other people's reactions? I don't think I could have found a better person to ask this question to. (laughs) Yeah, it's a really great question. I mean, the first thing that comes to my mind is when I think about myself is that it is much easier to tell a room full of strangers or a stranger on a podcast (laughs) about my vagina than it is partners, friends, family. Those conversations have been, and still I imagine will continue to be, much more difficult. So the first thing I would say is those conversations are hard. It isn't that I was born with an incredible power to have these conversations. It is so much harder to speak to my boyfriend about sex than it is to have this conversation now. And you're not going to be giving him the link to this podcast. (laughs) Well, he can find it if he'd like to listen to it. But I I think there's... uh, What's his name? James. Hello, James. (laughs) This is the moment for James, if he gets to this point in the podcast. (laughs) 
He will be a very, very faithful boyfriend. Yes, that's real commitment right there. But it is hard and it is easy to talk to strangers. It is easy when those boundaries are in place and and mostly you know how people are going to respond and react. So I think feeling daunted by having those conversations with close people, with your more intimate circle, is completely normal for that to be very, very difficult. And there is also no pressure to have them. I think that's an important thing. It's entirely up to you when and how you choose to have those conversations. I think sometimes we think we have to have them all at once and we don't. I would heavily suggest, depending on what the truth is that you are wanting to speak, but finding a peer group, I think is really important. For me, uh, there is a group called the Vaginismus Network, and they provide educational information about painful sex, and they've created a community which feels safe. And I know something that they do is they have a, a buddy system where they will pair people up. So you have someone who's going through exactly the same thing as you to speak to and feel heard and listened to and And the more comfortable you feel existing in that space where you can be your authentic self and really feel heard, I think the easier it is to have the conversations with friends and family. For me, finding a peer group, a sex positive group of people who could say the word vagina without blushing was enormous. So I'd say for this listener that find people and the internet is vast and wonderful and terrifying but there are people who are going through exactly what you are and we'll put the vaginismus network contacts in the show notes uh, where you'll find details of fran's book and my book called have the sex you want as well one of the thoughts i have i'm interested about how the carefully prepared thoughts just crumble to dust i think that sometimes what we think of our carefully prepared thoughts are in fact our arguments. We have a sort of a, you know, this is my case, A, B, C, D, E, F, and it's that that falls apart. If you sort of try to pre-think the conversation, he's going to say this, and then I will say this, and he'll say that, and, you know, I'm going to say that, it's never going to go like that. So I think what you've actually got to go in with is your truth, just actually think what your truth is, which in Fran's cases, I find penetrative sex can be painful. And what are the feelings? You know, I feel really awkward about talking about this. I'm I'm worried about your reaction. So that you've actually thought about what is your truth and what are your feelings. And I think if you've got that as a sort of a core place that you can come back to, you'll do fine. It's when you have that argument, which it's never going to go like that is when it all collapses. And, you know, really think clearly about what your core truth is. I mean, it's taken Fran quite a long time to get to her core truth, which is actually, she likes a lot of kissing and cuddling before we get into what a lot of people call real sex. So it might take you a little while to actually work out what your truth is. But I think if you've really got hold of your truth, it will not crumble. I hope that's helpful. Thank you for 
telling me about your broken vagina. There's something I really want to ask you, and I'd like you to say, is that you've changed your idea about um, how you feel about yourself. Do you still feel broken? No, I wouldn't use the term broken for myself now at all. I think it's really important to know that it's never linear. Our bodies change all the time from day to day. I've got really bad hay fever at the minute and I'm taking some antihistamines, which actually make me really sleepy and not fancy sex at all. Number one, because I'm all snotty and sneezy. But number two, they, they just make you so drowsy. And in those moments, I can occasionally slip back into being, oh, well, my body isn't working. It doesn't want sex. Everyone else, how is everyone else able to have amazing sex through hay fever? But I really, really try to not think of myself as broken. And there are so many challenges in sex. And in those moments where I feel like it isn't working, just to be kind with myself and go, actually, let's hug instead. And I'd like to hear what you say to yourself about your body now. I've tried to find ways to show it kindness. For me, when I move and dance, that's when I feel most in my body. So in those moments, I tell myself that my body is doing a brilliant job of being a body. Excellent. I like that. My body is doing a brilliant job of being a body and it's here to dance and yeah. to sing and to take me from one place to another. It's not actually there to be judged. I have a wonderful body that's wonderful at being a body. This has been a, a fabulous conversation and there's going to be more of it because we're going to be having an extended version in our supporters club. So if you want to hear more about Fran, go to my website and find out how to become a member of our supporters circle. For people who are not supporters, we're going to say goodbye to them. So bye-bye and thank you very much, Fran. For the kind people who want to support the making of this podcast, the conversation continues. You've been listening to The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall. You can follow Andrew on Twitter, like him on Facebook, and please leave a review wherever you consume your podcasts. Making, editing, and distributing The Meaningful Life comes with substantial costs, and we'd like to ask for your help. Visit our website, andrewgmarshall.com forward slash podcast, where you can join our supporters club and unlock bonus material for every program, send in a letter to be discussed by Andrew and his guests, and join a community of other people seeking to make their life meaningful. At the gold level, you get even more benefits. Production of The Meaningful Life with Andrew G. Marshall is by Michael Dooney. Social media by Madeleine Healy. Sound engineering and theme tune by Sebastian de la Luz Mendoza. And I'm Susie Colick. Please tell your friends and spread the word. Thank you.